You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there here in the studio of Gangland Wire. As you can see behind me, you see my badge that the uh, police department gave me when I retired. And right below that is a plaque that the FBI gave me to one of their special friends from your friends at the FBI. So. Anyhow, you guys all know what I used to do for a living, but I have via Zoom a former Canadian copper named Stephen Matelski. Maybe that's Professor Stephen Matelski. Anyhow, welcome, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me on, Gary. Folks, let me tell you just a little bit about Stephen. He was with Halton, more like a local regional police department up there for a while. They're a little bit different up in Canada. Then he was assigned for a period of time to the Mounties, to the RCMP, to work an undercover operation and develop some projects for them and some sources for them. And after that, he's gotten involved in the academics of organized crime. He is a professor at Mohawk College in Hamilton, Ontario. He is uh, an organized crime expert. He has a book out there. I believe it's titled Undercover, correct? Absolutely. Undercover just came out very recently. Did I get all your bona fides right there? Yeah, for sure. All right, good. You know, Stephen, here's what one of your students had to say. I researched it a little bit and they've got RateMyProfessor.com. I had a friend that had a Rate My Professor and they said some really bad things about him. <laughs> but here's what one, <laughs> one student said. One of the most interesting classes I've ever taken. He is very passionate about the material and reflects on his lectures, making them super interesting. Just make sure to study the reviews and watch the lectures and you'll be fine. Tests are relatively easy, and group projects are very interesting and fun. So, uh, <laughs> Professor Matelski, your students like you. <laughs> oh, that's great to hear. Feedback is the number one thing for my students. So, yeah, it's always great to hear that, yeah. and I'm proud to represent with my students. Yeah, I, I understand that. Every once in a while, I'll sneak a peek at the reviews of my podcast, and, and sometimes somebody will gig is like, oh, don't say that about me. <laughs> but then <laughs> yeah. mostly mine are really, you know, kind of like that, too. So, you know, I understand that feedback. And then I can, you know, we gauge our performance by our feedbacks many times, too. Absolutely. It's very important. Constructive feedback is always key. <laughs> right. So you were a police officer for 21 years before retiring in 2017 as a sergeant, and you specialize in uh, traditional organized crime, informant development, and undercover operations. And I think were you both as an operator and a handler of undercover people? Yeah, I was trained to do both. I initially started doing undercover operations and then more so the last half of my career as a supervisor. In Canada, they call it a handler. In the United States with different agencies, it could be called a case agent. or But in Canada, it's called the handler. And you're essentially quarterbacking. I always like to use the analogy of like a Scorsese movie. Think of Martin Scorsese as the handler. He's in charge of the whole set. He writes the scene. He directs people where to go. That's really the job of an undercover handler. And you're in charge of everybody. The cover team watching the undercover and the handler is directly responsible for the health, safety, and well-being of that operative. And as well, it's almost like a script, as you know, Gary, from your experience, we do operational plans and you can only script so much because (laughs) in the undercover world, so much spontaneity happens with the criminal element. But we have to, from a legal health and safety standpoint, we write the script, the operational plan of what we want that undercover operator to do and what the mission is, and then safety protocols, all kinds of things go into that. So it was nice to work both sides of the equation with undercover ops. Interesting. You know, myself, I worked undercover only that we'd follow people around. We'd go in the bars, 
and wear plain clothes and we had slick cars and that kind of thing. I never really went in and did hand-to-hand buys or fronted myself off as a criminal. I don't think I could have pulled it off. We had other people that were much better equipped to do that. But (laughs) when I got promoted to sergeant, I did what you talked about doing. Except if there was an informant, active informant working, he usually belonged, he always belonged to one of the guys. They met with him. I may meet with him once in a while just to make sure everything was kosher and we were all comfortable with what we were doing. But he was in control of that informant and would many times go in with him because his life depended on that informant keeping his stuff together. But all the other, the logistics and having a cover team and putting the case together, then I was in charge of that. So it's a really complicated procedure. And if you add a wiretap in on top of that, it's like, it's overwhelming. <laughs> it's just totally overwhelming. Wow. I did that one time and I swore, oh, I hope I never have to do this again. And, you know, it's, I really appreciate your experience too, Gary, because it's something I can totally relate to. And I like how you brought up informants because it was kind of a common theme in my book, Undercover. Just on a quick side note, you know, I spoke to operatives in the United States and Canada. And, you know, one of the underlying themes was a lot of these operations get kickstarted by that vouch, by that informant right. who's embedded in either, you know, the Italian mafia or in the outlaw biker world. Because otherwise, it could take years to work your way in into that inner criminal circle. So that informant can be good or bad because could have treacherous motives and they could even on the flip side of things, expose that undercover operative. So in a lot of the interviews I had with undercover operatives, they would utilize a well-embedded informant simply for the vouch. And then yeah. you know, part of that sort of operational plan, they would phase them out yeah. of Once that undercover was deeply embedded and and created their own street credibility with the criminal gang that they had infiltrated, you know, they sort of weed that and push the informant to the side. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt. If you can cut out that informant once he vouches for you and you get in with somebody, you make your own little friends and your own little network within a group. Get him out of there because he's always like a knife at your throat, man. If he flips or he says something wrong, it's like, oh, it all goes downhill after that. Problem with getting him out yeah. is you got to have a lot of resources to get him clear out of the area. You got to somehow get him clear away. Otherwise, he'll be over in some bar doing something with somebody and he'll show up, you know, sitting at a table next to you or something. And so yeah. it really need to get him clear away until it's over. I mean, we've done that and it wasn't such a long term that we needed to send him out of town for forever. But, you know, at least take him out to a motel pay him for like a month in a motel and say, you know, keep your butt out of the city, <laughs> stay out yeah. in the suburbs and maybe even babysit with him or check on him every once in a while. No, for sure. And some of your listeners and viewers, Gary, might recognize the name Jay Dobbins. Yeah. A very experienced undercover ATF. He's part of the book, which was an extreme pleasure to speak and get to know Jay. And, you know, one of the really cool things I really appreciate kind of in the introduction of my book, from Canada, I use kind of a hockey analogy that my undercover work is like the farm team, but the <laughs> yeah. people that are in my book were, they're the real deal. Yeah. Like they're the big leagues. Yeah. Yeah. And Jay Dobbins is one of those guys. And speaking of informants, just really quickly, Jay was deeply embedded in the Hells Angels in Arizona for two years. I read that book. It was food. so, so amazing <laughs> story. And he risked his life. He didn't see his family. He was going 24 seven, seven days a week. And the thing I really appreciated was you know, the entire project, Black Biscuit, but just the way they scripted and sculpted some of the cover story for Jay. Mm -hmm. And one of them involved that an informant who was part of the Hells Angels, and they made it look like Jay 
And this informant went down to Mexico where Jay's puppet club, the Solo Angels was. And of course, the Hells Angels in Arizona, their arch enemies were the Mongols MC. And Jay had been told by the H.A. Wallabies deep cover that if you ever see a Mongols MC, you kill him. And they scripted this story where Jay purported to leave to go to Mexico. And they basically wrote the informant out of the operation, but under this guise that the informant was killed Uh. by a Mongols member in Mexico. They never went to Mexico. They went to a different part of Arizona Mm -hmm. and they dug a shallow grave. The ATF did. They brought in homicide investigators (laughs) and one of the actors put on a Mongols cut actually from William Queen, another undercover operator. Unfortunately, (laughs) it wasn't part of my book, but they had the leather cut of a Mongols member and they used lamb's blood and they literally made this victim to lay in a shallow grave to look like he got whacked. And Jay took, they took pictures. And what they did was they put the leather cut of the Mongol in a package and the ATF sent it to the HA Hells Angels clubhouse to make it look like it came from Mexico. So when Jay came back, he had the story to tell. He had pictures, but they weren't convinced. And it wasn't until one of the Hells Angels members, while they're looking at the pictures of this dead Mongol and Jay's telling them, yep, I killed this guy because he whacked pops. He whacked one of her own. He whacked one of her brothers. And they weren't fully convinced until one of the full patch HAs opened up this box to see this blood soaked Mongols leather cut (laughs) with their gang insignia and the upper and top bottom rockers. And that's when, as Jay said, it put him over the top. His street credibility was just through the roof. And they actually put one of their full patch one of the full patch members draped Jay. Some of them were crying. So I just so appreciate not only the risks and the dangers, but just that thinking outside the box while you're working under a very critical and stressful undercover operation. It's just incredible. You can't write this stuff. No, that's for sure. I tell you what, those guys that can really do that. I had one that worked for me. He could have done it. He's a guy, as my captain told me, he said, we'll just call him John. John's the kind of guy that if you got something that you need to be done, and get it done, but you don't want to know about it, and you don't want to hear about it, you send John out. (laughs) So uh, one of those guys, (laughs) right? they're out there too. You got to to keep a rain on them every once in a while, but they're out there. Boy, takes a lot of guts to do all that. So it really does. Tell me a little bit about your own experience, I guess. You handled informants yourself, and uh, you work with the RCMP. Tell me a little bit about, and our listeners out there, wiretappers, uh, about your own experience. I'm really proud of my career, but I was really probably one of the most things uh, working intelligence I was most proud to be a part of was an RCMP project uh, called Otremens. And the RCMP, just to give you a quick backstory, there was a street soldier from the Bonanno crime family in New York City who uh, grew up. He was 100% Italian. He had connections, obviously, in New York City with the mob, and he had connections into Canada. The Bonanno family has historically been very connected to Montreal. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Rizzuto family. I saw that thing, Bad Blood. Yeah. They're hand in glove with that narcotics trafficking back in those days. Absolutely. And back in the 50s and 60s, that whole heroin French connection was the New York mob trafficking heroin up into Montreal through the ports. So there's this street soldier. This is in about 2013. He does a number of years, gets a jail sentence. He does the time. He doesn't rat anybody out. But after his sentence is over, he gets extradited from the United States to Italy. He's not allowed back in the USA. He's not allowed in Canada. And it was during his, this whole sense of omerta, this we'll look after you when you go to jail and and this and that. He became totally 
disenfranchised with the mob. He basically called the RCMP and said, this is what I could do. This is who I know. Ah, ooh, cool. <laughs> and it was a four year in Canada. We call it agents. So this mobster from New York, he was very connected with the Violi Lapino family in Hamilton. And there was a lot of homework, obviously, that went into this and contracts and letters of agreement because it's a four-year project yeah. and it was a four-year project. So this mafiosi from New York lived in Hamilton for four years and became very close with the Hamilton mob because he knew them from growing up. And the FBI was part of this too, even though the RCMP was kind of the lead because the majority of the project occurred in Canada. But one thing I'm really, really proud of to be a part of this was the agent had who's in witness protection now, but he had so much street credibility in New York, Montreal, Buffalo, and Hamilton that he became a made man. Mm. And the one beauty of this was the RCMP during the project, we were able to wire up a hotel room in Hamilton, Ontario, which is about 45 minutes from Buffalo, wire up a hotel room with video and sound. And two members from the Bonanno crime family drove up to Hamilton and inducted our agent during the project oh, really? into the mafia as a made man. He got his button and we had it all on video and audio. And after that, well, I mean, there's been a few instances where induction ceremonies have been captured, but to be part of it as an investigator was just incredible. And the project continued. And the beauty part of that, Gary, was our agent's street credibility just went through the roof. He's a made man in the Bonanno crime family. And he's operating up here in Hamilton. And the other really cool part of this was the two brothers, Dominic Violi and Joey Violi, are really what comprises the Violi Lapino family. Quick sidestep, their father was the underboss in Montreal in the 1970s, and he was murdered. And that's when the Rizzuto family took over that whole bad blood, and they became very tight with the Bananos in New York. So you have Paulo Violi's two sons are running the show in Hamilton. And while the agent, who's now a made man, in the Bonanno family, him and Dominic Violi, very close to the end of the project, they're having a conversation. And Dom is completely old school mob. It's caught on the wiretap. He tells the agent that he was down in Florida, which was true. He was out of the country. And by this point, Buffalo, New York, in about 2016, was being run by the Joseph Tadaro crime family, mm-hmm. formerly the Magadino family. And Dominic Violi tells the agent that Joe Tadaro bumped him, he got promoted and made history as the first Canadian underboss of an American La Cosa Nostra crime family. And that was just incredible. So, and we caught it on the wire. So here's Dom. And these aren't guys that are talking out of their, this for Dominic Violi, who grew up in the mob to say that because he felt comfortable telling the agent because the agent was now a made man. And Dom really started to open up to him after he became a full-fledged a made man because Dom was a made man. So they were friends of ours. Friends of ours, you know, that, yeah. That, that, yeah. yeah. And to get that on tape was just incredible because it really was. There's never been a Canadian who has been promoted to that level in any American La Cosa Nostra family. Uh, so the only unfortunate thing was, you know, the takedowns happened after four years. You can imagine how long and the resources. Oh, yeah. But eventually they say, we can't keep spending money on this. We got to take this down. I've been there. That's right. But the nice thing about the takedowns was not only in Hamilton and Toronto, a lot of mob connected people in Canada, but the takedowns happened in New York with a number of members from the Bonanno and Gambino family. And I forget the name of the prosecutor in the New York uh, attorney's office, but, you know, said something to the effect to paraphrase that 
not only to catch a making an induction ceremony on tape, that's a monumental thing. And it had a real serious blow to organized crime in Canada and United States. So I was really proud to be a small part of a really big thing. Well, that is quite an operation. Let me get that straight in my mind. Your agent was from the United States. He was from Canada and he was working for you guys. But he's operating in Canada, but he has some connections to the Bonanno crime family in New York. And he's working for them. Now, this crime family in Violis, is that a mafia family or is that a, I was thinking that some of those guys were Camorra rather than Sicilian mafia, but I get them mixed up. But so he's actually in Canada and they come up and make him because he's making, he must have been making money for them and sending it back and done some things for them down in the States. Is that how that works? Yeah. The agent grew up in the Bonanno family as a street soldier in New York. So he's at, here's my problem is you say agent. See, I'm thinking when you say agent, you're really what I look at as an informant, but what you do is you make a contract with him. What I heard you say, and then he becomes your agent, but yet he's really a criminal informant, what we would call in the United States. Yeah. Okay. I got you now. To clarify that Gary for your listeners. Yeah. Like the difference in Canada with an informant and an agent is an informant is your eyes and ears. You can't tell them or direct them okay. to you. But when they become an agent, it's really a highly elevated form of an informant. Yeah. And that's when lawyer becomes involved, the yeah. letter of agreement, witness protection comes in. And really for four years, they had a handler team for the agent. It was like a Scorsese movie. Everything was scripted. This okay. is what the agent's going to do. There were 319 undercover operations over the four-year span. Wow. Everything, you know, the wiretaps, we call them part sixes up here. It was just incredible. So yeah, he was very, uh, he was from the Bronx, a banana street soldier, but he had that connectivity to Canada. And the one thing I want to sort of implore again with your listeners is Canada historically has been serious connections with organized crime. The Violis are an organized crime family. They are Calabrian based. That whole Andragada is oh, kind of the Indragida, term. Andragada, yeah. I said Camorra. I meant Andragada. Yeah, okay. They're the Andragada. Right. Yeah. So the agent, before the project even started, obviously there was a lot of research. You can't just jump into these things, as you know. So when they say, I know A, B, C, and D, there was a lot of legwork that had to go in to verify the credibility and authenticity of what this guy was saying. And then yeah. when that was all verified, it was like, this guy's the real deal. Like he really was. <laughs> yeah. So I understand he, he got, that. I've been there on that. Yeah. Some guys will come in, they'll be lying, lying like a rug, as we used to say. <laughs> and so you start investigating their story, first of all, and, and it'll just start falling apart. You know, he said, this guy can't know this guy. Yeah. You know, that, I talked to this other guy. He never heard of that guy. You know, you look at his record. He's got all his two bit stuff in there. And yeah, the, you got to investigate him because sometimes you'll get them in and they can't, you know, they just want to get some money from you. And, Act like they're doing something so interesting. Absolutely. (laughs) But it was really neat, Gary, to, you know, and the reason he got bumped, he got his button was the more an American based crime family like the Bananos, if they can have a solid street soldier that they can promote who has really good links with mafia families in Canada, that's just another pipeline, Okay, you know, for rackets, for drug trafficking, for money laundering, you name it, like it all comes with the territory. So to have the project was centered in Hamilton, Ontario, as I mentioned, about 45 minutes from the American border, Buffalo. And to have that knowledge that members from New York City were going to come up and induct him officially into the Bonanno crime family in Canada on Canadian soil, the project team had ample opportunity to go in and giz up, wire up and set everything up and video in the hotel room. 
And I will say gone where, you know, the mafia historically has been steeped in ritual and symbolism, (laughs) you know, wasn't the prick the trigger finger and the blood goes on the saint card and they burn the hands. But regardless, the, the fact that members drove all the way up New York City to Hamilton is probably about a nine hour drive. They drove up. It was a 15 minute ceremony, all caught on video and audio. And then they turn around and drove back. So so what did they do? They just like explain the rules to him and things like that. I know there's one down a Patriarca family. They caught one on audio. I've seen some of the transcript and they really after it's over, then they are explaining the rules to him. So what did they do mm-hmm. up there? You had to explain some rules and that kind of thing. Yeah, they were pretty to the point. From memory, the guy's name was uh, Damiano Zumo, and he was the acting captain of the Bonanno family at the time. And he was right to the point. This is from here and after. You are now officially a member of the okay. Bonanno crime family, and you are to report to, this is your skipper. This is These are the rules. You're not to deal with anybody else. Congratulations. Well, you know, and then introduced him to the other member that came up and yeah. kind of really quickly... I call it kind of it was like the Coles Notes version, mm-hmm. what you see on TV and shows like The Sopranos. It wasn't like that, but it was without a doubt. He was officially made. It was an official induction okay. ceremony. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, really. That's uh, <laughs> uh, Tell me, uh, as a documentary filmmaker myself and a person that's really interested in little audio bits, is any of that available anywhere? Does that all go into some archive and nobody can ever see it again? Or is it out there on the internet or news people got it or anything like that? I know how hard it is to get that kind of information out of archives because yeah. I've done it here. So I had to file a motion with the court and get a judge to order that they give me copies of those audio tapes. So what about yours? A lot didn't happen in terms of media. There was the Violi brothers ended up pleading guilty. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah. So it was in Canada, an agent that elevated form of an informant. The difference is an agent in Canada at the trial, their identity is going to be exposed yeah. and they have to testify. In this case, because of the guilty pleas, the agent never stepped foot in a courtroom. And so it got a little bit of media, but it as quickly as it was in the on the headlines, it went away. I think for the most part, you know, obviously if there was a lengthy trial and if some of these mobsters, but... I know in Canada and the United States, a lot of them don't want that. They want to just get it over with and, yeah. and either plead guilty because believe it or not, that Omerta still like the oh, Violi yeah. brothers, their father, they grew up in the mob. Their father was the underboss of Montreal. And these are the real deal mobsters. In Canada, we call it, you know, put on a government jersey. They'll never be an informant. So they just pled guilty and they're in jail now. Uh, the guilty pleas were in 2017. And the majority of the charges, we have criminal organization charges. I know in the United States, it's RICO. They dismissed those, but they got lengthy terms. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dom got eight years for drugs and his brother, Joey, got 16 because they were all over the world with drug importation and, you know, the deadly drug uh, fentanyl. It's just highly, highly creating an epidemic of overdoses. So there was more. The reason Joey got a longer sentence was that mitigating factor at sentencing because he was kind of more the street guy, Joey. Whereas Dom was kind of more, he was the older of the two brothers and he was more the guy that was always in the suit. He was more the business side, whereas Joey ran all this, was in charge of like the street crews. Interesting. Now spell their last name for me. I'm going to look up a little bit about them. V-I-O-L-I. Okay. Just like it sounds. All right. I didn't want to take a chance. So, okay, great. Is there like any internet stuff out there? News articles about this case, the appellate cases or anything like that. Guys can go out and research this. Yeah, there's the news media in Toronto covered okay. the, you know, the sentencing. Is and, this and in your book? Police. 
Did you do a chapter in your book on this case particularly? No. Yeah, okay. Ironically, no, because I uh, I dealt strictly with undercover operations. But the nice part about my book is there is a ton of mafia stuff. You know, I also interviewed Joe Cantamessa, a retired FBI agent, and Joe and his technical team were responsible for everything that happened with Joseph Pistone, the undercover agent known as Donnie Brasco. And the one interesting thing about Joe and some of these undercovers you might have heard or seen in documentaries, but a lot of them, their stories haven't graced the news or newspapers. And Joe's story is a little bit out there, but not a lot. But Joe in his prior life was a real telephone repairman. Yeah. And he became this FBI agent and started in Buffalo and then went to New York in the mid eighties when the five mafia families, in my personal opinion, were at, at their height of power and corruption. And Joe installed two hidden microphones in two really key significant places when all the five FBI teams investigating the five mob families started to really use Rico to their benefit. And all the surveillance they did on Angelo Quack Quack Ruggiero and John Gotti's right hand man, and even Paul Castellano, the boss of bosses of the Gambinos, you know, they hours and hours of surveillance. They came back and said to Joe and his technical team, this place is impossible. There's cameras. Somebody's always home. Yeah. So Joe literally would put on his New York Bell telephone outfit. He'd have his black covert bag. And he literally was installing hidden microphones right in front of Angelo Ruggiero. And because he had actually legitimate phone issues. But my favorite one was Paul Castellano in his huge mansion out in Staten Island. And Tommy Bellotti, who is his bodyguard and driver, answers the door and lets Joe in. But the really funny part was CNN and cable TV. That was all the new big thing. And yeah, had all those gadgets (laughs) and they spent weeks and weeks researching a way where they could introduce cable interference to Castellano's television set. (laughs) And it was brilliant. This is, these are these out of the box ideas these agents come up with. So Joe and his partner, they had, you know, their FBI van dressed up to look like a cable van. And Joe's in the same blue coveralls, but now he's posing as the cable guy. And (laughs) they just showed up because they knew somebody came to fix their cable. So they were happy to see Joe, the cable guy. (laughs) And as Joe's on the phone with Bilotti right beside him, Bilotti thinks Cantamessa has called the cable company, but he's on the phone with his fellow agent down the street. (laughs) And as Joe's inside tapping on the TV, the agent in the van down the street is introducing interference to the TV. And he <laughs> cool. actually gets Tommy Bellotti to hold the flashlight and shine it in the TV <laughs> while Joe Cantamessa is putting in a hidden microphone. <laughs> and if we fast forward, the bugs that were planted by Joe at Quack Quack's house and Paul Castellanos, all of this stuff, that disclosure that was coming up because Rogerio was and Gotti and that whole crew were involved in heroin and Castellano wanted to hear these tapes Yeah, and Gotti and Ruggiero and the whole crew, Sammy, the bull Gravano knew that the second the boss hears the tapes about the heroin trafficking, they're all dead men. Yeah. And this is what essentially led man. Yeah. (laughs) All of them would have been dead Gary. And the coolest part is like, you know, I don't want to see anyone get hurt, but this is really Joe's work is what led that snowball effect down the mountain to that meeting at Spark Steakhouse where big Paul Castellano rolls up with Tommy Bellotti and unbeknownst to them, Gravano and John Gotti had planned to whack them before they even got on the restaurant. And that's, you know, the rest is history, as they say. 
interesting, you know, uh, for one of a nail, a shoe was lost, as it says, and if of one little bug, the whole rest of the future changes, really. If they hadn't got those tapes of Quack Quack talking openly, and they say he, like, just ran his mouth all the time about this drug operation that Paul Castellano would have certainly had him killed and anybody involved with it, a whole bunch of things would have been different after that. It's really, that is a heck of a story. And that's in your book and other great stories like that. You know, we had to we had a similar deal in Kansas City. Those guys, they've got balls, man. Those dudes that do that, those black bag dudes, agents, they got nuts. I tell you what, <laughs> we, we got this house. We know there's going to be a meet with some people from Las Vegas and our crime boss, Nick Savella, and his brother, Carl, and, and their underboss, Tuffy. They know that's coming because they're on another wire and they're planning this meet. And they've been planning it for a couple of weeks. So, But you only got a couple of weeks to get in this house that's right in the middle of the Italian neighborhood. So they mess up her phone because it's in a relative's house. They mess up her phone. So I talked to the guy that went in. He's a friend of mine, actually, and he still is here in Kansas City. He goes in, knocks on the door, says, you know, there's phone problems. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can you help me? Oh, yeah. So, you know, one's out at the box and one's inside. And so my friend goes inside and then the other agent comes in. He's the one that's going to do some bug planting. It's a woman. It's this old maid woman whose house they're going to meet in and so he takes her, and she's in the kitchen. He says, well, what are you cooking? That smells really good. So she takes him in the kitchen. He's like getting the recipe for her chili, writing down all the <laughs> details of the recipe while the other agent's yeah. in there putting something in, which, interestingly enough, didn't work right. It wasn't picking up enough, and so they had to go back in, and they couldn't do the same thing again. They didn't feel like, so they knew that she was going to be going out one day. So they got a car just like hers, and they put a woman driving that really didn't look like her, but had on like a kind of a big coat. It was winter and a hat or something, and put two agents in laying down the floorboard, and they got her garage codes. So she drove out the neighborhood. They drove in, opened the garage door, and went in and closed the garage door behind them, and then went back in and planted some more bikes to get better reception. So it was, I tell you, those guys are something. So you've got stories like that in that book. I tell you what, folks, that would be a really interesting book. Well, Stephen, we've been here about 40 minutes now. I think probably uh, we can get on back to our regular work. And you have really told us some great stories. Folks, you need to get out and get that book undercover. Stephen, you got anything else you want to tell these uh, wiretappers, as we like to call each other out there? Yeah, actually, if they're interested, they could check out my official webpage for the book. It's called Underworld, all one word, underworldstories.com. Okay, great. Now, you don't have a social media presence, Twitter and all that. Twitter, it's at Stephen, uh, P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-M-E-T-E-L-S-K-Y. Okay. And I know you're on LinkedIn because that's where I LinkedIn first found too. you. <laughs> Under the same name, yeah. yeah. So, folks, if you're more interested, want to know more about Stephen and his work, or maybe if you're up there and I got a lot of Canadian listeners, you take one of his classes. He's got online classes now. You could... You heard how great they are. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you got students that love you. And so if you're in a criminal justice program, why well, you might want to get into some of Stephen's classes. So Stephen, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I had a blast. I right, really appreciate you. it, Gary. All right. All right. Bye. Take care. Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast Reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content. So if you want more 
mob information than you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and, and each podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie, if you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire. I use some illustrations in those, and by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99. Or two ninety nine if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and linked them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation. And then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about Gangland Wire. You guys all know. I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening, and listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. Casey.